You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today once again to talk about the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages if you prefer, uh, as one of us does and one of us doesn't, is Jordan Poss. And Jordan, it has been so long since we've done this, I've forgotten your title and where you teach. It's it's uh, Greenville Technical College, is that it? Oh, that oh that was six years ago? No, uh, what, I, what is am... it? I am now an instructor of history at Piedmont Technical College Piedmont in, Technical. in Greenwood, South Carolina. All right, so, so well, that, that's that's on me as the host for failing no, to a, remind myself. It's confusing. Of like everything around here is named after Nathaniel Green or some other founder. <laughs> so sure, um, I, it all runs together, and I, I get that. Uh, I knew you were an instructor of history. I should have led with that, and that would have made it a little better. But uh, <laughs> I, I was going for the college first instead. Uh, today we are talking about uh, well we we want to talk about the Vikings but we're we're doing this through the uh, the the Viking narrative the saga of the Volsungs uh, and uh, uh, before we get into the narrative just a, a quick overview of the the Vikings uh, some uh, the, the Vikings are, are ascendant uh, between roughly 700 and 1100 uh, they they come on the scene as pillagers or traders or colonizers or imperialists. Uh, or boogeymen, uh, just depending on what time period and what region of the world we're talking about. Uh, they range from uh, Newfoundland uh, in eastern Canada uh, to the Caspian Sea, uh, and from Greenland to North Africa. So their their spread is really remarkable given the technology of the uh, the age, uh, and given that they they move almost entirely by ship. Uh, so their their mobility is is one of the most impressive things about them. Uh, Iceland uh, itself is settled uh, sometime in the 9th and 10th century, kind of late 800s, early uh, 900s. They maybe take it away from a handful of Irish monks. Uh, Everybody likes that story, but it sounds like it's one of those things that is kind of hard to confirm. Um, uh, uh, Iceland is, I guess we'd call it colonized. Is that the right term for it? I, I, as a medievalist and teaching this, don't like to use the word colony except in the roman context where they actually use it to talk about resettling soldiers right or in the explicitly modern context when you're talking about modern states creating subservient satellite kind of resource producing regions uh i would just say spread (laughs) or settlement settled Um, yeah their their own word for it they 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 in Icelandic historiography, they actually talk about this as the settlement period, right? Because um, I mean, there's nobody there as as far as we know. Um, they're not. They they are. We'll probably talk about this more as we go, especially once we actually read some Icelandic sagas. But um, many of the people who go to Iceland, there's like a big, you know, they, they discover it, and then there's a big movement of a settlement there, uh, specifically in response to. You know, for lack of a better term, kind of political upheaval. There's a king named Harold Fairhair who's consolidating control of Norway and Denmark. There are a lot of people who don't like that, and so they just get out of his jurisdiction. And Iceland is open. Um, right. They've heard good stuff about it. Uh, so what it is actually most like, and this is a this is just a comparison that occurred to me a long time ago, and I've, I've heard you know actual experts in the field make the comparison as well. Uh, it's a lot more like the Wild West, maybe after the Civil War. Because we've all, you know, whether it's the Virginian or the outlaw Josie Wales or whatever, uh, we all know that stereotype of like the Confederates who aren't happy about Yankee control. And so they go west to a place where there's less control, less oversight. They can kind of start over, do their own thing. Um, You don't want to press 
those parallels too hard. But there are a lot of people who are explicitly trying to get away from Harold Fairhair, and Iceland is maybe kind of the place to go. So, you know, a colony is going to be directed by somebody, and Harold Fairhair has no control over right. what's going on in Iceland. Uh, it's, you know, Iceland develops basically into a network of self-contained, self-directing, autonomous communities. Um, they're not producing resources for anybody except themselves, pretty much. Um, you know, it's it's it doesn't. You can talk about colonization specifically in the sense of a population moving from one place to another, but beyond that, um, I think the term would be misleading. That was, that was a really long <laughs> uh, excursus, but hopefully that it, it's kind of it's kind of hard to find a word um, right for what they're doing that doesn't smack of kind of modern political categories. Well, right, and and uh, yeah, I mean the, there, there's obviously overlap between modern, more modern colonization. I mean, getting away from what's going on politically or religiously back home, mm-hmm. uh, there there are good parallels there with what's going on, say in in America in the 1600s. But yeah, but yeah, there's there's not the same political control. Uh, in fact, Iceland stays autonomous uh, through most of the the Viking era. Uh, governed, uh, uh, I just have written down in the notes, they're governed in the traditional Viking way, uh, where at least theoretically the the army assembles and does whatever major decisions, whatever major business needs to be done. Uh, every year uh, at the big gathering of the army, uh, as as Iceland becomes more settled, uh, the the historical the, the sort of story is that it becomes no longer necessary. It's it's both unwieldy to try to get everyone in from all over Iceland, uh, especially as the population grows and the the farming season is fairly short. So you, which is also the travel season. So you know you you got to be home farming. You can't be traveling out and and uh, and doing government business. Uh, so they. They start to uh, send in just whoever their local magistrates are, uh, whoever the, the local officials are, are, are sent to the uh, uh, the, the gathering. Uh, so uh, this uh, this becomes the uh, the all thing, uh, A L T H I N G, I think is the English spelling of it, uh, which is uh, the the first representative assembly in history. Uh, so it's not the first legislature ever. You know, the Romans had a legislature, the, the Greeks had a legislature, uh, but it's the first one to use representation as a tool, at least uh, as far as we can tell. Anyway, I don't. Maybe there is another Viking representative assembly somewhere else, and I'm I'm not familiar with it. But this is this is the earliest one. Some sometime in the 900s, uh, you start having representatives being sent uh, to stand in for uh, the the local district where they're from. Uh, the uh, the Icelandic all thing also has the record of being the oldest continually operating uh, uh, representative assembly in the world. Uh, again, starting sometime in the 900s and running until uh, today, uh, so so running uh, for more than 1,100 years at this point. Uh, it does not Iceland uh, doesn't count as the oldest country in the world because uh, Iceland is not an independent country uh, in the sense that it is now until 1944. Uh, they in 12 can't see my number on the, the sheet here. In 1252, uh, Iceland turns itself over, surrenders, makes it sound like they fought a war and lost. Uh, uh, Iceland approaches the king of Norway and says, hey, we uh, we need an executive figure uh, to sort of carry out uh, the decisions of the all thing. We, we have a legislature, but we don't have enforcement powers. Uh, can you can you take this on? They, they join themselves to the kingdom of Norway uh, where they, they stay until 1944. Uh, and there's there's movement between the Kingdom of Norway, Kingdom of Denmark, uh, and I don't I don't know all of the history of that. Somehow they start with Norway and end up with Denmark, and then become independent right at the end of World War II. Uh, am I missing any anything big in the the political movement in Viking Age Iceland there, Jordan? I don't think so. I'd I'd point out as well that the All Thing, at least in the Viking Age, uh, functions not only as a legislature but as kind of a judiciary. Yeah. Where there's kind of a system of appeals, uh, local local. I mean. If you read the sagas, the, Nor- the Norse love to sue each other. <laughs> They're constantly <laughs> right. bringing suits. They're constantly bringing cases against each other. And there's local things or assemblies. And the all thing is the once annual assembly where if you have a case in the thing, the local thing from your district, uh, and you you know you don't get the result that you would like or there's kind of a not exactly a hung jury but some sort of you know a decision can't be reached, uh, they'll settle that with – Everybody in attendance at the all thing, and part of the part of the point of that is that um, you know this is all being it's kind of like a um, what's the word I'm looking for like a sunlight law, right? Everything is being done out in the open. Yeah. Everybody's witnesses, 
um, witness uh, is a huge factor in Norse law, especially in, in Iceland. Uh, you can even <laughs> – there's even like a, a legally uh, – permissible is not quite the right word, but there's, there's even like a legal method to killing somebody in a dispute, uh, which involves getting witnesses and declaring what you've done so that they can actually begin kind of a prosecution. And there's a, there's a lesser penalty for that than if you murder somebody and try to cover it up. Um, so again, the, the, the thing and the all thing have this very interesting kind of hybrid function. Um, I almost wanted to draw a parallel to like the articles government before the constitution where there's no executive. Yeah. But I, I, beyond that parallel, I think that would be misleading. Um, cause there's nobody in charge right. of the Icelandic Republic. They don't, you know, they, they have these local magistrates, the called, um, Gothar or go the singular, which, uh, you can see the word God in there. They originally also had kind of like priestly functions, like they maintained local shrines and things like that. In addition to kind of judging cases and enforcing the law. Um, but, uh, there's no elected president. Um, everything's kind of worked out en masse through the thing and the all thing. Um, so it's, it's interesting and it's unique. Uh, and if, if, <laughs> you know, since this is a political science podcast, we can go in there before we start talking about killing dragons, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that, that to me is one of the things that makes this world so, so interesting and rich, especially if you're raised on the popular image of the Vikings as, you know, these kind of, you know, some of the time that was the guys in horned helmets, swilling ale. Now it's guys with shaved heads and tattoos, doing whatever they do on that show. I don't know. Um, the, the real Vikings are so much more complicated and interesting in addition to being way, way, way more terrifying than uh, any Hollywood version will actually push the envelope. Yeah, and well, and the uh, the Articles of Confederation parallel, I, I, I'd also thought that. Um, it's not completely inappropriate. So the, mm -hmm. the all thing does theoretically become a sort of model for what Parliament will become. Uh, and th there is the connection there through the Viking involvement in England. Uh, th so there, there's no, there's no equivalent in Roman precedent for for this kind of a, a legislative body. And as far as I know, I mean, we know so little about, you know, non-Roman and non-Viking Britain that, as far as I know, there's no equivalent there either. Right. Uh, so the, this this is indirectly sort of the ancestor of things like the modern U.S. Congress. Yeah. Um, well, in, in non-Roman, non-Viking Britain, so among the Anglo-Saxons, you've got a variety of institutions depending on the particular kingdom. You know, So it's, it's right. very, very hard to speak generally because you can immediately think of exceptions. But you know, they, are, they are obviously kingdoms, so there's an executive. Many of them have some kind of council. Uh, the most famous is the Witan or the Witan Yamot from Wessex, um, ancestor of J.K. Rowling's Wizengamut. Um, right. and Intmoot from Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, that that is kind of, I mean, it's literally the, the meeting of the white-haired or the, the white-haired or the wise ones, depending on how you break down the origin of the word. It is kind of a council of elders or a council of kind of the senior most uh, um, noblemen, athelings in, in the kingdom or thanes, again, what they're called depends on the context. Thanes or Eldermen or in Norse-influenced areas, uh, er, Erls uh, from the Norse Jarl. Um, Which my wife is one of those. Earl. She's an Alderman. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. But she, I, I doubt she's trying to uh, keep Vikings from landings on landing on the shores of Missouri, right? I mean, I am pretty sure she would prefer they not. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you, you do you do have, like, councils. You do not have – there is also a, a great deal of decentralized authority over particular uh, you know, towns and things. So you, you do get of that. Necessity, kind of necessity, right? Yeah, it, but you do, you do get that um, kind of 19th century Walter Scott mythic version of England where you right. know, it's like these kind of strapping Anglo-Saxon, you know, uh, lower case R sort of republicans. Uh, you know, Americans really glom onto that sort of mythic image as well. Um, there's there's something to it, but that, but that is an oversimplification. In in British parts of Britain, um, the situation is very very different, where it's much more. You've got these kind of Celtic chieftainships blended with kind of Roman models, 
of sort of top-down military authority. And that's going to look different from kingdom to kingdom because Wales has as many independent kingdoms as Anglo-Saxon England does. But yeah, what, what the Norse work up in Iceland in particular is um, something else entirely, um, especially considering how seemingly informally it operates with, again, nobody at the top to say, do this. Right. It's, it's, it is kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, libertarians might be interested in it because it is kind of, you know, a self-enforcing, um, you know, self-enforcing system where, you know, everybody answers to the law. Everybody's enforcing the law on each other without, you know, a lot of the uh, apparatus that we would associate with a modern state. There's no cops, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Again, which makes it feel a lot like the Wild West. If you want – if if there's a guy who's murdered somebody and he's been outlawed at the all thing, you get together a bunch of guys and go kill him. I mean that's a posse <laughs> essentially. Right. Well, and it, it, it's also and, – and maybe this is deeper into the into the all thing than we need to go. But the the, the other distinction that seems to start in, in Iceland at least as far as, as far as I know, and this, this isn't my historical era, but uh, – uh, is the separation of the military from the legislative legislative branch uh, legislative function uh, again just just sort of practically because there there is no military threat in Iceland uh, unless you have insurrection from your own people like no one's going to invade uh, there aren't native peoples there uh, one of the problems the the Vikings keep running into in uh, eastern Canada is the, the conflict with the Native Americans well they don't have any of that in Iceland uh, so the the legislature the all thing fairly early, and again, I don't, I don't have exact dates, but fairly early, all it's doing is whatever limited political stuff there is to do, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, the, the military stuff just kind of goes away uh, in a way that it can't until later, much, much later uh, in England and Norway and Denmark and so on. Right. And part, partly as well because the guys attending the all thing are the military. This is, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it is much more like, you know, the Wild West thing again. Um, you know, it, it's it's much more like a militia, you know, um, there's no formal structure to an army, especially since you are now outside the kingdom of Norway and Denmark, where there's no king calling on you as his, you know, the Anglo-Saxon term would be a thing, right? Um, right. You, you're you not answering to anybody and owing military service. Uh, so, I mean, if you really, really want to fight somebody, you either fight your neighbors <laughs> And there are there are Icelanders who are happy to do that, or uh, you know you build a ship and go raid in the Baltic for a while, and come back wealthy. Um, so I mean the, the you know a, a military, in the sense of a professional body, of war fighters or soldiers is you know an alien concept, um, and is going to you know that's going to influence the way that that develops as well. Well, that's uh, that's probably enough politics out of out of Iceland <laughs> uh, in the 900s. Uh, we'll come back to uh, it for some, sure. Yeah. <laughs> So, some point along the way, uh, Icelanders decided that they like a very specific form of literature. Uh, and do you do you want to talk about this? I I don't know how much I can say about the genre as a whole. Uh, sort of pulling out some notes and just blatantly plagiarizing some of my college professors. <laughs> I think it it'll require a really short introduction, then we can actually start talking about this particular one. We'll we'll talk about a couple of other sagas, I think, before we're done with the series. Yeah. Uh, but the the literature is the saga. Um, and it's that that is a word that is directly related. It's directly cognate to the English word "say." Um, you know, you get this. This gets into linguistics, where some G's in old Germanic languages turn into hard G's, and some G's in English turn into Y's. Uh, in Norse, you get saga or sugur, um, plural. Uh, they are literally sayings, if you want to kind of parse the word that way. Uh, the the idea is that they are oral stories. Um, so these are handed down orally. Um, you know, we did uh, uh, core curriculum. Uh, you know, Homer uh, in, in installments back in the day. Uh, you know, transmitted orally as well. And, and pre-literate societies have apparently this just tremendous capacity for memorization. Uh, it also helps that it's local gossip. <laughs> right. uh, so the sagas, at least. There's, you know, there, there's this category of literature that's, you know, originally orally transmitted before being written down in Old Icelandic, sometime in the High Middle Ages. Uh, and there's various names of particular saga writers associated with some of them. Uh, many of them are anonymous. You know, we don't know who eventually recorded them. Maybe we can get into some of that more later. Um, but within the actual genre itself, so so 
what you're going to look at if you pick up a book that says Saga on it. Uh, first of all, no no sparkly vampires. That's a abuse <laughs> abuse of the word saga. Um, it, it is a prose narrative. Um, they are they are prose. That is that is key, uh, which is also p- pretty distinct in medieval literature. Uh, the Norse certainly produced poetry, and we'll probably talk about some of that later. Um, uh, you know, Beowulf, of course, is a great Anglo-Saxon narrative poem. Uh, not precisely an epic, but again, that's getting into these kind of gray areas between genres. But sagas are prose. Uh, they might, you know, they, they tend to tell some sort of long, long often generational story. Uh, so even the one we're going to talk about here, it falls squarely into the mythic sagas or the sagas of heroes, um, you know, legendary sagas. They're called by a variety of different things. Uh, but you are getting multiple generations of the same family in this prose narrative format. Uh, stylistically, what the sagas remind me of the most are the Old Testament books of history. Uh, they read very much like the books of Chronicles or First and Second Kings or First and Second Samuel, something like that. Uh, you, so like those, you get these historical narratives narrated in a kind of omniscient third person. You know, this happened, this happened, so-and-so thought this, and so they did that. Uh, but we don't get, you know, what the Greeks introduce, which is any kind of historical apparatus to understand how we know this, you know. You don't have anybody saying, I talked to... I talked to Skirnir Olafsson, and he told me that Sigurd did this for this reason, you know, that kind of thing. But within the saga genre, you get things, uh, sagas of uh, heroes or, you know, legendary sagas or mythic sagas like the one we're going to talk about today. These tend to be either – well, again, we'll talk about this more – but seemingly very dim rememberings of possibly historical events from the migration era. So again, the period just before things like, you know, Beowulf, that kind of thing. So 300s, 400s, 500s, if, if again, there's any historical content to it at all. And there's some reasons to think that there might be, but again, it's so far removed and so heavily mythicized. Again, it's, it's becomes very, very hard to piece together any genuine, authentic historical content. The others, and probably by far the more common, are uh, what are often just called the sagas of Icelanders. They are family sagas or even sagas of specific regions in Iceland, and they basically are – again, Netflix Netflix needs to jump on this because you get like 20, 30 episodes of a you know like sprawling family drama out of some of these things. Uh, just these very complicated stories about the – relationships and rivalries and especially feuds among the various families settling in Iceland. Um, They take place across a wide sweep generally between the settlement era and the conversion to Christianity, which happens thanks to the all thing. They actually vote on it at the all thing uh, about the year 1000. Uh, And they, again, very often span multiple generations um, telling you about all the different members of particular families, who they get involved with, who's marrying who and who has kids with who and who is killing who, uh, who is killing ghosts occasionally, which to me is one of the most interesting and charming aspects is there are the very grounded kind of gossipy sagas, but then they'll just throw like a ghost in there in the middle of it, right, that somebody has to go kill and it's presented completely without comment as if it's like, well, of course, you know, this guy froze to death in a blizzard. Of course he's going to go kill cattle. After he's dead. (laughs) Right. I love that stuff. I wrote a novel about it. Uh, So anyway, um, so there's those. There's also uh, what are called the King's Sagas, uh, and these are particularly associated with a writer named Snorri Sturluson, who's also very famous for a book called The Prose Edda, which is essentially a later – you know, I think he lived in the 1200s. I should have checked – I should have double-checked this earlier. Uh, He he is a Gothi, so he is one of these – chieftains, magistrates, who represents a region at the all thing. Um, and he uh, he realizes that the kind of art of traditional Norse poetry is dying out and composes this what is essentially a handbook, both for how to compose the old form of old Norse poetry, as well as how to understand some of the extremely intricate poetic effects and allusions in the surviving poetry that we have. Uh, if it's not for Snorri... <laughs> There is a lot about this literature we would no longer understand, but that's on the poetic side. Um, but he he wrote a bunch of king sagas. Uh, there's actually a book called the Heimskringla, which is just a whole series of 
sagas from kind of the mythic past through guys like Harold Fairhair up to I know Harold Hardrada, who was killed invading England in 1066, is in it. I can't remember if there's any sagas after that, but it's it's a pretty broad sweep. But um, that is – is there anything about else about sagas I should cover here? I think that's um, – I mean, I know so much about sagas. I don't know how I could fit it into. No, I, I, I know very little to nothing about them. Uh, I mean, I, I will say the the one that we we read. I you'd mentioned the core curriculum. I think one of the things that will stand out is how different different and similar this is from something like Homer's poetry. I mean, it it is obviously very different. Right? Different different things are emphasized. Uh, there are almost no gods in it anywhere. Uh, they they pop up every once in a while, like Odin will show up and do something, and then, but it'll just be some guy, and then the narrator will have to tell you that was Odin, yeah. uh, and and you might catch you know this guy with one eye shows up, and you're like, well that must be Odin, and sometimes you're not told. So in that sense, you know it's it's it is intending to be a true story, e- even even when there is a dragon. Uh, or when there is someone, I don't remember if anyone's turned into anything else. I'm I'm listening to uh, the audio version of the uh, Mabinogion at the same yeah. time. I got to say that is a weird freaking book, <laughs> and uh, Welshmen spend a lot of time getting beat up while they're tied in a sack. Uh, so I, I I may be mixing my stories a little bit here, but uh, you know there's there's just very little uh, uh, very little supernatural anything in, in in at least the one we we read today. Uh, so in that sense, very very different from Homer. Uh, but very similar. I mean, you, you still have, you know, essentially blood feuds going on. Uh, you, you still have sort of the idea that uh, a friend is obligated to defend a friend and to uh, avenge a friend if necessary. Uh, there are those familial relationships. There's you know, generational strife. Uh, all, all of the things, all of the themes that we saw in, in, in Homer, uh, the restoration of the household after it's been broken for whatever reason, right? Uh, uh, the uh, 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 love of a woman tearing apart uh, a people. I mean, all of those things are, are, are still there. So I, I actually kind of struggle to say, well, is, is this like reading Homer or is this so unlike? And I, I don't know that I have an, an easy answer to that as I'm clearly struggling to try to put that together. Now, that said, I don't know if that applies to all sagas or just to the, the couple of them that I've read. Um, I've, I've read uh, Saga of the Bullsungs, which we'll, we'll talk about here in, in just a minute. And I think I've read the Vinland Sagas. And, uh, oh, one, the, there's another Penguin edition of, of Saga, and it's like Frankel's Saga or something oh, yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Ravenkel's Saga. Yeah, yeah, there we go. So I, I've, I read that years ago and gotcha. could not tell you anything about it now. <laughs> um, but I read Saga of the Volsungs yesterday, so maybe we should maybe we should move into that. Jordan, uh, uh, do you want to tell us? Uh, no, I'll take this because it's the easy part. <laughs> what is a, uh, what what is this about? Um, uh, the uh, the the short answer, right? It's it's the uh, it's the family of the Volsungs. Like Volsung is is a family name, uh, and we're we're getting is it three or four generations of them? There's allusions to multiple ones. Like it, the story really primarily picks up with Volsung. We get one or two mentioned before him, and then it yeah, follows, so we get his dad for sure. Yeah, then it follows him. Uh, um, I'm I'm struggling not to slip into the Anglo-Saxon versions of these names. Uh, yeah, don't do that. Yes, uh, Sigmund, <laughs> Sigurd, and uh, Sinfjotli. And uh, depending on the edition you have, I, I'm I'm looking here at the Hackett translation by Jackson Crawford. Okay, yeah, that that's a good one. Good one too. Is that Jesse Bjork? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Hackett uh, edition, uh, translated by Jackson Crawford, I would highly recommend. Uh, he includes what he calls a medieval fanfic sequel uh, called the Sa- <laughs> the Saga of Ragnar Lodbrok, uh, who Ragnar has he's been played by Ernest Borgnine. I think he's the main subject of that History Channel show that looks so terrible. Um, and I think he's been in a number of other, there might even be video games about him at this point. He's in a Ghostbusters episode. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So we, we should have, we should have had David here and I, I may del- delete this out. Uh, I, are, are you the one who knows Jackson Crawford or is that him? I think, I think yeah, it's David. They were at UGA right? together, I think. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm I know. sorry I wasn't here to riff on that. No, no, no. It's good. Jackson Crawford is awesome. Um, is, you know. Let me recommend his. Let me recommend Jackson Crawford's YouTube channel on top of all this because he's really great at what he does. Um, he's also a Westerner like Coyle uh, and brings a really 
stripped down, no nonsense sensibility to the stu- uh, study of the stuff that I appreciate. Uh, especially because maybe we'll get into this more later. There is all, also just a lot of really bad pop culture and kind of like, I'll just say it like neo-pagan junk surrounding the Vikings uh, that can be very, very hard to sift through if you want to act, get actual historical understanding of the subject. Um, Jackson Crawford's a really good place to start for that. And I, and of course my, my solution is always just go straight back to the, the texts you know that was my introduction yeah. to this i read the saga of the volsungs because i did not know until i was in college that there was actually an icelandic version of the story i recognized from the nibelungen lead this high german epic um which you know we'll, we'll have more to say about later uh, and i just dove in not knowing anything and it was just such a i mean it was like what you know blundering into narnia like <laughs> <laughs> what what is this? Where am I? You know, there there's so much more here, and then spent just years and years reading every saga I could lay my hands on. Um, but yeah, so you were, I, sorry, I, I don't know how we got off track. Um, <laughs> uh, translations, I think, is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. You were about to summarize off. the saga. Yeah, so uh, if you're familiar with the Nibelungen lead, it's uh, the saga of the Volsungs. The the material is there, right? It's it's clearly. Either it is the source material, or they're both drawing on the same source. I, I don't know which for sure. Uh, and it is also looking back at the historical event of the destruction of the Burgundians by the Huns, uh, which is much more emphasized in the Nibelungen lead than it is here. Uh, but again, what, what might stand out is how, how little of that there is in the Saga of the Wolfsongs. It's, it's there, but it's sort of background for the, the family strife and the family drama that's going on, uh, as is the, uh, the the killing of the dragon. Uh, so Siegfried the, and the dragon, or uh, Sigurd, I think he is in, uh, in my translation, uh, kills the dragon Fafnir. Uh, and in the saga of the Volsungs, it takes maybe a page, <laughs> maybe two. Uh, and I think in the Nibelungen lead, it's half the book. I mean, It, it, it is it's, only mentioned in the Nibelungen lead. Oh really? Yeah, See, it, maybe I'm, I'm yeah, mixing it up with. Uh... It has already happened when the Nibelungen lead starts. So Siegfried in that is famous for having killed Falvnir, but he's still very young, and um, you know falls in love with Kriemhild, gets married. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah, again, yeah. there's these like chivalric versions of all of these things that happen in the Volsung saga, but it is only mentioned that he had killed Falvnir, the dragon. I don't think the dragon is even named. If if I could be wrong. Maybe I'm maybe I'm. Uh... Maybe I'm mixing in the Sci-Fi Channel version of it that they made <laughs> oh. in the early 2000s that I watched in college, yeah, uh, uh, Dark Kingdom. Was that is that the one with that? What was his name? Um, I have no idea. Uh, there, yeah, there was there was a really bad movie version of it that I saw in college and was very displeased that it departed from the Nibelungen lead because um, I'm that kind of person. Uh, but no, uh, I can't remember if the dragon is even named in the Nibelungen lead, but it has already happened. It's an important plot point because people discuss it. Siegfried is famous right. for it, uh, and again, a, a major aspect of like w- when the when his enemies want to kill him, they've got to figure out how to do it because they know that his skin is proof against any blade because he had bathed in the dragon's blood. Um, but all of that happens off screen essentially. Um, so if you right. if you want the story of how he killed the dragon, this is where you're going to get it. Uh, see, I. I... Man, I have, I have memories of that, so there you go. <laughs> My false memory going on there. Uh, so yeah, he does he does kill the dragon in this, uh, and you know very super quickly with with a little bit of advice from Odin. Uh, so Odin shows up and uh, basically gives him advice on the thing he is already doing. It's like thanks, Odin. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's again that's that's all of a page, uh, and then. From there on, uh, Sigurd, who, and I'm going to butcher all of the names, uh, is the son of, I should have, I should have traced all of this out. What is, whatever his father's name is, um, is it Sigmund? I believe so. Let me, let me double, let me double check, because I'm, 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 no, Sigmund, oh wait, uh, yes, yes. Right, so, so Sigmund, who in turn is the son of Sigir, Sigir? Sigir, yeah. Sigir, uh, who we meet when he murders a slave. Uh, I mean, again, this really is kind of a family story. Uh, Having killed the dragon, uh, Siegfried, or Sigurd, uh, Sigurd then falls in love, and I'm going to 
continue to butcher these names, falls in love with Brunhilde, uh, who gives him like a page of Proverbs, which I don't think is my favorite part of the book, but I definitely had to stop and be like, what is going on here? Uh, and and I, I mean, these are literally Proverbs, and, and the uh, chapter heading in, uh, in this translation is uh, Brynhild's Wise Counsel. Uh, so things like do well by your kinsmen and take little revenge for their wrongdoings. Uh, endure with patience and you will win long-lasting praise. Uh, beware of ill dealings, both of a maid's love and a man's wife. Ill often arises from these. Now at this point, if I were Siegfried, I would be just tuning out uh, because this this just keeps going. Uh, the the point being that uh, Brynhild is, I think, I think the point is Brynhild is a catch, right? She is uh, she is attractive, uh, she is smart, and she is. I think a powerful warrior, or am I once again confusing my my versions here? I believe she is a a Valkyrie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Sigurd and Brunhild decide that they're going to marry, uh, and then along comes, and they don't call her Kremhilda in this translation. What do they call her? Uh, Gudrun. Gudrun, yes. Uh, Gudrun, who uh, is apparently a witch. Uh, or, or at least, is the sort of person who can brew up a potion that makes uh, Sigurd forget Brynhild, uh, and then Gudrun marries Sigurd instead of Brynhild. Uh, and again, now I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confuse these again. So in, uh, in the Nibelungen lead, Brynhild gets her revenge. Right, uh, Brynhild sets up everything that leads to Attila coming along and killing everyone. And in this, it's Gudrun's brother. Is that right? <laughs> Uh, it, I, I'm starting to get myself tied in knots here. Um, I know, and I don't think it's you. I think it's the book. No, it, um, yeah, it, it's complicated. It, okay. So, so I'm, try, I'm trying uh, to like slice the Nibelungen lead out and focus on this. It. Yeah, that's uh, better than I can do. Um, uh, so, so Gudrun and Sigurd are, are married. Uh, Brynhild wants to marry Sigurd, but Gunnar wants to marry Brynhild. So Gunnar uses Sigurd to like basically pass all of Brunhild's tests, uh, and th- like ridiculous things like jump through a fire and don't be harmed. I mean that sort of thing, uh, which Sigurd can do and no one else is. So he uh, magically takes on Gunnar's appearance, jumps through the fire, marries Brynhild, uh, and then gives Gunnar's appearance back to Gunnar, so that Gunnar is now married to to Brynhild. Brynhild finds out about all of this and kills herself. Sorry, listener. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, and uh, along the way, uh, as she is killing herself, tells Gunnar all of the terrible betrayals he's going to do to, to Sigurd, uh, which he does, uh, and uh, Gunnar has Sigurd killed. Um, and then King Atli, who, again, is, is Attila, uh, comes along and kills everyone else. Pretty much. And I'm sure I'm missing big big points here, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, again, there's there's a lot of names and they're all Icelandic. Uh, what what am I missing in this? Um, the the so, so that is um, one of the, one of you know dear listener one of the reasons this is confusing is because um, uh, I had tried to put Nibelungen lead out of my mind to talk about this because the the whole the uh, Brynhild, Gudrun, Sigurd, Gunnar aspect of this with all of the change of identities, the passing of tests, uh, that kind of thing. All of the that that is that is the primary. Oh, oh and then Otley in in the Nibelungen lead, his name's Etzel. Um, all of that is kind right. of you know th- that is the slice of this saga that is later turned into this medieval high German epic with a lot of tweaks. Right, so uh, everything is just similar enough to remain confusing. So um, the the things that I would draw attention to as well are the previous generations, uh, which I find fascinating. Um, Volsung, Sigmund, and Sinfjotli. Uh, Sinfjotli is Beowulf's Fittila, who gets mentioned in like one or two places, um, which again is tantalizing. Maybe we'll talk about more of that later. Um, but uh, um, the the cycles of you know betrayal and revenge. Uh, the um, you know w- one of the reasons one of the reasons that all of this happens is because of Sigurd's uh, the, the way that he acquires this treasure uh, from the dragon Falvnir, and he's Falvnir is a dragon, but he's actually a dwarf in disguise. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> is he a dwarf or is he he's a uh, he's he's the like the brother of the king or something like that, isn't he? He, he uh, uh, mm, now now I'm second guessing myself. That, that <laughs> show, he so is uh, shapes it shifting. Um, and of course, yeah. Also... So there's there's three brothers and one of them becomes an otter. Yes. And I'm sorry, listener, if this sounds insane to you, because it is. Uh, one becomes an otter. One becomes the dragon, and then the other one is is the king. He's like, well, I, I, but maybe they were dwarves too. I don't know. I I remember them as dwarves. I might be I might be misremembering that. Uh, there's a lot of shape shifting associated with dwarves um, in these stories, uh, but Falvnir, yeah, uh, his other brother is Regan, who is with Sigurd on this mission, uh, and um, you know one of the supernatural talents that Sigurd acquires. Uh, he he doesn't realize at first, at least, that he's being kind of egged on to kill Falvnir by Falvnir's brother, Regan, uh, having already killed their other brother, Otter, in order to get information from him uh, and all of this, you know, this treasure that's going back and forth. And, of course, this ring, which is going to sound really familiar, uh, which everybody desires. <laughs> um, but uh, um, when when um, uh, Sigurd kills Falvnir, he cuts out the dragon's heart to eat uh, – I believe Reagan is the one who tells him to do this. Uh, Reagan turns out to have an ulterior motive for it um, because Sigurd touches the uh, heart where it's roasting on a spit to, you know, see if it's done. Uh, it's hot, so he burns his finger. He sticks his finger in his mouth, and by doing that, accidentally gets a little bit of the dragon's blood in his mouth, uh, which gives him the power to understand birds' speech. Uh, and he hears all the gossip of the birds surrounding him and then figures out what's actually going on with Reagan and betrays and kills Reagan, uh, which gives him control of this treasure, which eventually also, again, gets him into hot water with all of his in-laws and his relatives, all of whom all of whom desire this treasure and especially this you know ring that comes along with it. The ring also factors in with the betrayal of Brynhild because he gives it to her as a token of betrothal. Then he forgets who she is and, again, rides through this flame surrounding Brynhild, uh, which only he should be able to do, but he's doing it disguised as Gunnar. Um, yeah, there's this, this is a really rich and complicated story, and it uh, doesn't stop <laughs> doesn't stop with Sigurd's huh. death. Um, right. that, that's, that is something that many of the sagas, whether they're legendary like this one or even the family sagas – uh, of Iceland have in common is that they just they just kind of stop at some point. Um, there there is some resolution to major you know what you might think of as plot lines, but again something that's distinct about it that I I personally find a kind of charming genre feature is that there's not a ton of attention to a lot of the conventions of a you know modern storytelling, or even you know you take somebody like the late David McCullough, who is writing a real story but he does try to put it into the shape of a satisfying novel, right? Where there's a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, you get episodes in sagas with beginnings, middles and ends that all kind of loosely weave together, but ultimately again, don't have necessarily a through line. Uh, there's also not a real, con not always a real concern with continuity. Uh, also, you know, you're just kind of expected to keep up because something that tripped us up a minute ago is that there are in fact two Sigmunds in the Volsung saga. Right. Um, right. Um, Last uh, earlier this year, I was reading I was rereading Geesley Sorsen's saga, one of the great outlaw sagas, and there are multiple guys named Geesley in it, in addition to the subject of the saga. So I mean, caveat lector, um, if you decide to get into this, but it's worth it. Well, and, and and nominally at least, because this is the saga of the Volsungs, I mean there there is a sort of wholeness to it, mm -hmm. in that it begins with the the first Volsung, right. first member of that family. Who presumably is is of any kind of note uh, when he uh, he comes to uh, comes to prominence uh, by killing the slave of I think the king or or killing the slave of uh, some kind of powerful figure I, I guess I don't know exactly um, uh, who who it was that uh, uh, whose whose slave it was but he kills the slave which brings attention to him because you know you're you should not be killing slaves. Uh, or a thrall, I guess. Maybe I shouldn't say slave. That's that that has connotations that maybe weren't there. Uh, and then the uh, the saga ends with the the death of the rest of the people in that family. Uh, so when uh, Sigurd's sons are killed by, oh, I don't even remember who, some some yet other king, uh, not Attila but someone else. Uh, that's the end of the family, right? There, there's 
they're, they're distant, distant descendants of the guy that we met. Uh, and as soon as they die, they, they die before they have children, I think. So that's the end of the family. But within that, I mean, uh, you have a beginning point and you have an ending point, And in between that, there's just this giant scribble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of the things that we would think, well, this, this is the story, right? Battling the dragon. Uh, or the Huns invading and trying to kill everyone, or the magic treasure, uh, or the ring, or whatever. All of the things that the modern reader is going to be like, well, I want to know more about this. Uh, those things are either super quickly mentioned and then pass away, uh, or they're they're uh, uh, they're they're left open. I mean, I don't know that I could tell you what happens to the treasure. Uh, it's it's there and it's bad luck and it's bad luck and it's bad luck, and then all of a sudden. I mean, I, I don't even know who has it last, yeah. uh, which maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. But uh, uh, again, uh, uh, they're, they're like if I'm if I'm trying to diagram the uh, the plot of this story, I don't know how I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that well, that's the thing. It's does it doesn't exactly have a plot in the modern sense, which does give it right. again, even though it is you know there's a lot of clearly mythic elements, it does make it feel a little more real because stuff just happens. Um, you know, like Guthrie, she gets married what three, three times? Um, maybe tw- certainly twice. Yeah, that that sounds right. Uh, certainly twice. Um, maybe, maybe a third time. Um, I'm, I'm blanking a little bit on the very end of the saga. Uh, but you know, you, it, it's also like a, this big, sprawling world. You know, you get and you get actual historical figures. There's a guy who pops up near the end named Jormunrek, who is a historical king of the Goths, who is mentioned in Roman sources. He's also mentioned in a couple of Anglo-Saxon poems as Eormenrich, um, or Eormenrich. Um, you know, so I don't know. Maybe maybe it's too early to get to get into some of the migration period stuff, but there's something that feels real going on here. It's got some of the complexity of real life where stuff intrudes from the outside. Um, people don't always make <laughs> decisions that are in their best interest. Uh, and things just enter and disappear from the story at various points. Uh, with, again, without necessarily with, – without whoever eventually wrote this down, feeling the obligation to uh, inform the reader of what happened to it. Uh, a, a, a modern internet ver- nerd version of this story would be 800 pages long because it would have to tie up all the loose <laughs> ends. you know. Right. Um, well, and, and I suppose it's fair uh, to say, look, if I were to – Someone were to say, "Hey, write down everything that someone else needs to know about the last, you know, five generations of my family." Yeah. And, I mean, I suppose it might look like this: like it would, it would end with the most recent members and begin with kind of my vaguely half-remembered great-grandfather, right. and there would be random stories popping up here and there about my grandfather and my my dad and uncles and all of that. Uh, and anyone coming in from the outside trying to read that is going to be like, this is a mess. What is this? Where's where's the narrative plot line, right? right? Uh, where's where's the thread that ties it all together? And it's to be like, it's it's the last name, yeah. right? Uh, that's that's basically it. Yeah. Because that, and that is the thing that Ung ending on Volsung, uh, that is both Volsung's name, but that is also the name of the family. Um, you get this. Uh, the clearest parallel that a lot of people will get is you know the opening of Beowulf, that talks about the Shieldings. Right, so Shield is a king. His descendants are the Shieldings, right? And and if you read a lot in this the literature from this time period, you run into families like the Wolfings, uh, the you know the oh who else? Um, now that I, now that I'm giving examples, I'm blanking on them. There, there's uh, the Hundings. Uh, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of them mentioned just offhand in Beowulf, which has a very similar. Uh, sensibility about how it drops in references to what's going on uh, outside the limited scope of the poem. Yeah, Cain and Abel show up in Beowulf. Yeah. <laughs> so right. Uh, well, I, now now that I've thoroughly butchered the saga of the Volsungs, uh, any, anything else you want to say out of the text? Otherwise, we should we should wrap up with uh, uh, its influence, which is far beyond the size of it as a text. Um, anything else out of the Volsungs itself? Um, I, I, yeah, I really feel like I'm not doing justice to it. I did not have time to completely reread it, so I, I skimmed it just enough to <laughs> remind me of all the stuff that I know, <laughs> but also jumble it a little bit. So yeah. apologies, dear listeners, because I know, I know that there's people who I know from social media who will want to listen to this when I say that we've released it. Um, but it's a really, really excellent very bracing, very weird 
piece of literature in a yeah. lot of ways. Uh, and I appreciate that because where when you read when you read Homer, it feels familiar enough to kind of lull you into thinking you understand more of what more than you maybe actually are. You know, and, and when we did core curriculum, we talked about some of the weird, some sometimes you know, kind of disturbing differences between that time and ours. Uh, the what I love about Norse literature is that the weirdness is all right there on the surface, um, but uh, it is you know very blunt and matter-of-factly narrated, uh, which I enjoy. Just come, you know, if you're not familiar with this literature already, come to it with an open mind, ready to remember names. Um, and most of the, uh, you know, I, I found reading, you know, may, maybe reading the Old Testament was good preparation for this, um, you know, reading the uh, Old Testament history books. But um, most of the good editions that you'll find, and, and, you know, Coyle was reading Jesse Bjork, who's a really good scholar. I would recommend his book, Viking Age Iceland, uh, which was very helpful to me when I started studying all of this almost 20 years ago. Uh, the one I read was by Jackson Crawford, again, which I would highly recommend. Um, I don't know about Bjork's edition, but Crawford certainly includes like family trees, glossaries, all sorts of other, you know, light academic apparatus to make it a little easier, to, you know, for the student to track. Um, but um, beyond that, as for the actual content of the saga, I, I think we've got it fairly covered. Um, yeah, you, you emphasize yeah, not, not well, but it's all there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, some of it's there. It's, it's again. There's there's a lot of stuff that happens that just sort of happens. Um, and, you know, what, what's what's interesting to me is to read modern adaptations like for kids. Uh, so um, one of the Inklings, a guy named Roger Lancelin Green, has a very good book called The Myths of the Norsemen, uh, which is prim primarily about the gods, the Asir and the Vanir, and you know the the various um, Jotnar and that kind of thing. Uh, but it does include a chapter or two on the events of the Volsung saga, including, you know, pr primarily focused on Sigurd and Gudrun and Brynhild. Uh, and it is interesting to see someone adapting this literature into a format that is comprehensible in the terms of storybooks kids now would be familiar with, um, while still, you know, and to Green's credit, trying to, you know, be as faithful to kind of the tone and the worldview of the originals. Uh, it is really, really interesting to see the way <laughs> these stories kind of have to be fleshed out in places and massaged into a different shape in others uh, in order to be coherent by our standards. Um, but yeah, so there, there's, there's a lot here that we, we could go into. Um, uh, Crawford's edition, like I said, includes a sequel, you know, that is sometimes in medieval manuscripts came packaged with it called the saga of Ragnar Lodbrok. Uh, Coyle was emphasizing, you know, the uh, the way the story kind of wraps up with everybody in the family dead. Um, right. it, it is very much, you know, Jackson Crawford called a kind of medieval fanfic, and they do the fanfic thing where, oh, it turns out that one of these characters had a, a kid that wasn't mentioned in the other saga, but there's this other kid out there, and we're going to follow that branch of the family now, which is interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, and if if uh, since we're since we're mentioning other you know versions of this if if you are the sort that reads this and you're like i wish this were more of a coherent whole narrative uh then then wagner's your guy right uh the the, the nibelungen lead it's it it's a version of this that is uh fuller especially the second half i mean I, again i it's been a long time since i've read that clearly um but uh, uh, the the Huns and Krimhild and Brunhild and, and Siegfried and all of that uh, worked out in the Nibelungen lead. But Wagner is the one who takes this and turns it into what is the ring cycle like? Like twenty hours long? I mean, Six, it's this sixteen conservatively. It's four operas that are usually they usually clock in at about four hours a piece, depending on how. They're I, I mean, it is it is it is all that you could ever want <laughs> drawn out of this, and then probably a little bit more than we need. Uh, but also includes music that all of us would recognize. I, I may use some of that as outro music. We'll see. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting stuff that if Hitler had never risen to power, I think more people would probably like, uh, but because he did, some of it's sort of awkward. Um, also, of course, uh, if, if you want more fleshed out usages or, or at least something that is inspired by this, that is a coherent narrative, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, is going to be another uh, another go-to for that. 
uh, and it is again it is it is clearly a coherent whole by modern standards and also clearly looking back at this uh, and drawing on uh, drawing on what's what's going on in the saga of the Volsungs. In fact, I think uh, yeah, my my version of it says right on the cover the source for Wagner's Ring and Tolkien's yes. Lord of the Rings. So <laughs> publishers wouldn't lie about that sort of thing, right? Um, it's a little unfair to all three of those actually. <laughs> There's a great deal of originality in Wagner and Tolkien, uh, to greater effect, I think, in Tolkien than Wagner. Sure. And I'm saying that as a Wagner fan. Um, Tolkien, Tolkien was a, a, a genius in a way that I, as great as Wagner was, I don't, I don't think he was quite there. Certainly, Tolkien is a better man. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> sure. But and, and the the Volsung saga itself, it's it's not interesting just as source material. It is a great, great piece of literature on its own. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Those influences that that's really good. Um, I would, I would maybe emphasize, you know, without getting, I, I know we're going, we're right at an hour. Um, no, I would not go, you know, too far down this rabbit hole, but, uh, to tie it back together with a few other things, it is, this is interesting to me, both as somebody who just pre- appreciates good stories, but also history, uh, cause there are the, you know, bits of historical events and people, floating around in there, which of course is really, really, I I think I used the word tantalizing earlier, especially if you read widely in multiple different languages, literatures from this time. So Beowulf, uh, many of the characters in the Volsung saga are mentioned in Beowulf under slightly different names. So Volsung is Walsing, who is mentioned at least once in Beowulf. Uh, Sigmund is mentioned in as far as we can tell from these little allusions in Beowulf, it sounds like there's an independent tradition in which Sigmund is the one who kills Falfnir, not Sigurd, uh, which is interesting. Uh, Fitdala, or excuse me, Sinfjotli, right? Um, uh, uh, Sigurd's, Sigurd's son? No, Sigmund's son. Goodness. Uh, Sinfjotli pops up as Fitdala, who is, meant, you know, he, he is in the Volsung saga, the son of you know, incestuous uh, relations uh, between a brother and sister in Beowulf. He's a nephew. Then that, you know, creates, is this a euphemism, right? Are they, are they trying not, are they trying to downplay this? Is that because Beowulf is written down by Christians or is it because in the context of the story, it is a story being told in Hrothgar's court and they're trying to, you know, tidy it up a little bit. You can get into all kinds of wonderful (laughs) rabbit hole kind of uh, debates and, and, sure. and discussions there. Uh, but what all that points to, especially mentions of characters like Atli and Jormungrek, is that, again, the, the people who live... We're, we're used to approaching the fall of the Roman Empire as, a, as being a catastrophe for the Romans. But, of course, it is also pretty rough on the people causing the fall, too. And they remember that, right? So there is so much movement. There is so much violence. There are so many major your figures uh, who are especially remembered, uh, you know, in both Old Norse and Old English, the handful of mentions we get for Jormanrek or Eomanrek, uh, depending on the name that you use for him, are that he is a goth and he is cruel, right? Uh, and that seems to be borne out by some of the other offhand references we get to him from, you know, Roman and Byzantine sources on the goths. Uh, again, there's not enough there to piece together like a biography of the guy. Uh, but it is enough to indicate there's a lot of stuff happening among these movements outside the boundaries of the empire uh, that, again, have a strong enough effect that people are still talking about it and telling stories about it hundreds of years later. Uh, ditto Otley. There doesn't seem to be as much of an awareness in the Volsung saga of what the Huns are. Um, they seem to conceptualize the Huns as kind of just another another Norse people who live somewhere far away called Hunland. Right. Uh, which which makes sense because there is literally no one else around other than the Norse right. people in right, Iceland. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um but the uh you know, in um uh yeah uh Otley, uh so that you've got the Huns, you've got the Goths, um Oh, uh, that that is actually something I was gonna say that's interesting about the Nibelungen lead is that there does seem to be a little bit more of an awareness of how foreign the Huns are. Because Etz, Etzel yeah. is described as pagan. Um which is at least a little... Although still follows the rules of chivalry. Yes, yeah. Right, still, he is still, I mean, he's like knighting people. Right. I mean, he's he's still... Which is something... Very much a European yeah. monarch. And that's something you get in Arthurian literature, too, where you get the... Uh, it's, it's sort of the way 
in the high Middle Ages, they regard somebody like Saladin. It's like, yeah, he's not a Christian, but we can still respect him on these terms, right. you know, warrior to warrior, right? Game respect game or game recognized game, whatever that meme is. Um, right. So, yeah, there's there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on there historically um let me recommend a book here that i mentioned you know before the show but uh this is really recent by the great tolkien scholar tom shippey uh so this doesn't directly relate to the volsung saga but this is a i think a good place to work it in uh it's called beowulf and the north before the vikings so the volsung saga is the story that is written down after the viking age heavily influenced by what happens during the viking age uh, the version that is written down apparently, you know, congeals, sort of comes together during the Viking Age and is very reflective of the way the Norse understood themselves and the stories they told about themselves. Uh, there are poems independent of the Volsung Saga that tell in poetic form some of the things that happen in this poem, and those are collected. You can read some of those in like the Poetic Edda, which is this collection of mythic poetry. There's a lot more of the gods in that than there is in uh, the Bolsung saga. Uh, but Be what uh, Shippy does in Beowulf in the North before the Vikings is try to piece together what we can know about this northern world between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Viking Age, right? Because there's several hundred years there that, you know, it's, it's what Coyle can call the Dark Age, and Tom, Sh <laughs> Tom Shippy goes to bat for that term. Um, I take issue with it, but go for it whatever um, um <laughs> shippy presents pretty good reasons uh to you still use the term dark age my beef is still that that's you know that's not what most people are going to hear when they hear that term but whatever right. um but looking at this dark age this period between these two major kind of epochs uh what is going on in the in the heathen north right uh that this is the world where the volsung saga if something like it took place, that's where it took place. And Shippy does a really great job looking specifically at Beowulf, uh, making a case that Beowulf is actually very accurately reflective of the world that that's taking place in, uh, and all of the famous allusions to outside events that Tolkien lectured about in his famous lecture, The Monsters and the Critics. Yeah, there's genuine historical content there. It's backed up by a lot of independent outside sources, and it does actually cohere. Right. Uh, reading the Volsung saga and Beowulf in light of something like this, I think, could be very, very informative if you're if you don't just love the literature, but are also interested in kind of the world that produced it, if that makes sense. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to uh, to stop uh, uh, because we've been going at this for over an hour. And uh, if this uh, listener, if this feels like a disjointed episode, uh, it's David Grubbs's fault. <laughs> so there you go. He's he's the weak link in this. Uh, because uh, if nothing else, he's the literature guy among us. So, and uh, this is well. When we reconvene, we should see which of us is Reagan, which is Otter, and which is Fafnir. Oh, um, <laughs> Reagan, Otter, and Fafnir. What did I say? Uh, I thought you said Reagan. I would say Reagan isn't the like Reagan is there, yeah, but is he the other yeah, brother? Yeah, those are the three brothers. Oh, that's right. Uh, Radmar was the father. So one one of them is treacherous and a father killer. Another one is this stingy guy who likes to swim, and the other is um, glomming onto Sigurd to try to get the treasure and ends up hoisted by his own petard. None right. of these reflect very well on us, which I think might make it a <laughs> yeah a more interesting personality test. Um, and they all die pretty pretty horribly yeah. too. So there's that. Oh, one other thing I would say about Otter. Um, that you need to know if you're going to approach this literature when you've killed a person and they don't die outright, don't let them talk. <laughs> yeah. They are going to curse you. And, <laughs> and it, and I mean, fate working the way it does in this world, their curse will work. Um, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, this is, this is a very, very fatalistic world. Um, well, I think, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, obviously. Are you a Brunhild or a Krimhild or a, a Gundren? I think is also maybe oh. a way to go. I, I don't know that we need to answer that. that is, okay, <laughs> uh, I, that is very, very hard for me to answer because, okay, so in the Norse version, I would probably say Brunhild because Sigurd has yeah. an original understanding with her. They are actually, you know, in love, which is weird in this literature. Uh, there's not a ton, yeah. there's not a ton of room for romantic love. 
Um, he makes, you know, he plights his troth to her, right? Gives her an engagement present. Um, it is not his accursed engagement present. Yeah. So there's that, um, which, you know, if you've ever been kind of hapless, you might identify with, uh, yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear cut that Sigurd and Brynhild are, you know, it is, it's got to be Brynhild because Guthrun is extremely underhanded. That is very hard for me to decide, though, because I'm so familiar with the Nibelungen lead and have re- reread it so many times, in which Grimhild is very clearly morally correct. <laughs> um, uh, Sigurd, I mean, in, in the Nibelungen lead, Siegfried goes to Vorm's specifically to meet and marry Kriemhild. Only later does the issue with Brynhild crop up, and uh, it, it plays out in a very similar way, but from a very, very different starting point. So, I mean, these, yeah. are, these are almost... It's as if there were two two versions of Star Wars, one in which Darth Vader is the good guy, and you're having to pick, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. How about um, you? Oh yeah, I well I'm kind of with you. I, I'm Brunhild all the way, T- Team Brunhild on that on that one. Uh, possibly even in the Nibelungen lead, although again it's been so long since I've read that, and I may be confusing it with the movie and with this. But uh, uh, if it's the movie yeah. I'm thinking of, they pull the uh, they pull a whole lot of the Volsung saga in there where yeah, Siegf- you yeah. know in that version it's Siegfried and Brunhild they know each other and then Siegfried gets a memory wipe, which is just not there at all yeah. in the Nibelungen lead. Right, which I mean, that's that's sort of the key plot point in the the Vol songs. Yeah. Again, similar enough, but different enough to really make you wonder. Um, but don't, I, won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> well, all right, we'll uh, we'll leave it there for today and pick it up either with some more Vikings or with our next topic uh, the next time in our medieval series. Jordan, thanks for taking time to do this. Oh, yeah, and, great. Uh, well, thank you listeners for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's.